My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Lynn Gale. An important mechanism through which the Canadian settler state has attacked Indigenous nations and implemented assimilation and genocide is its imposition of the legal category of, quote, Indian status. That is, dictating who counts legally as a, quote, Indian. The details of how this process has worked have shifted over the years and are quite complex, but one crucial feature is the ongoing reality of sex discrimination. Between 1876 and 1985, Canada allowed Indian status to pass to children almost exclusively from their father. As well, if a woman with Indian status married someone who did not have it, then she lost her status. While a man with status not only kept it when he married a non-status woman, but even passed it to her regardless of her actual background. Indigenous women have been resisting colonization and its gendered impacts all along, but legal and political challenges led by Indigenous women to these particular aspects of the Federal Indian Act began to get wider recognition starting in the late 1960s. It was only in 1985, in preparation for the new Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms coming into effect, that the federal government began to make concessions to these challenges. Unfortunately, the amendments to the Indian Act passed in 1985 continued to be discriminatory. Men with status and descendants of such men who had full status at that point were in 1985 given what is called 6-1-A status, named after the relevant section of the Act. Those women whose status had been taken away or who had previously been denied it but were eligible for it under the new rules were granted status under Section 6-1-C. The rules for passing on status to descendants were also changed, but were more restrictive for those with 6-1-C status than for those with 6-1-A status. Political and legal challenges led primarily by Indigenous women continued in the years after 1985, as did the inadequate responses from the federal government. Despite further legislative changes, particularly after a legal victory by Sharon McIver in 2009, the hierarchy between 6-1-A status and 6-1-C status remained intact. One of the other legal challenges in those years was mounted by Lynn Gale, an Algonquin Anishinaabekwe with roots in the Ottawa River Valley. She is the author of The Truth That Wampum Tells from Fernwood Publishing in 2014 and Claiming Anishinaabe, published by University of Regina Press in 2017. Gale's case revolved around how to handle status when paternity was unknown or unstated. The government assumed her paternal grandfather, whose identity is unknown, to be non-status, which resulted in her being denied status. She ultimately won after many years in court, but the form of status that gave her access to remained a more limited form, called 6-2 status, because of the way that the ongoing 6-1-A, 6-1-C hierarchy applied to her family. The most recent amendment to the Indian Act was made in 2017. Extensive lobbying and political mobilization succeeded in getting the Senate to pass a version of the amendment that would enact what Gale called 6-1-A all the way, and would eliminate sex discrimination in the Act. 
But the Trudeau government still rejected such measures, claiming more consultation was necessary. As a compromise, they left the relevant clauses in the final legislation, but refused to proclaim them. Which means they are not in effect, but could be enacted by a simple order in council, rather than by passing new legislation. Gail lives in Peterborough, Ontario, and her member of parliament is Mariam Monsef, who is the Minister of Status of Women. Because of this, and in light of the Liberal government's attempts to brand themselves as feminist, Gail decided more recently that she needed to continue to take action. Every Tuesday, the day that cabinet meets and could proclaim the necessary clauses, she's been protesting outside of Monsef's office with the demand 61A all the way. She's been doing lots of media work on the topic, and she's mobilized other local people in her area to put pressure on Monsef as well. She urges people to show their solidarity by contacting their MPs and the relevant cabinet ministers. And she encourages people to go to the website of the Feminist Alliance for International Action and support their campaign on the issue, which they call Any Tuesday. I speak with Gail about sex discrimination in the Indian Act and about the 61A All the Way campaign. My name is Lynn Gail, and I'm an Algonquin from, well, my ancestors are from the Ottawa River Valley. That'd be my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my father. I was born and grew up in Toronto, Ontario, starting university in my 30s. After I finished my undergraduate degree, I relocated to Peterborough, Ontario, known as Nagajuan. Peterborough is where I completed my master's and my PhD. And uh, as I was moving through university and graduate school, I had this ongoing issue of sex discrimination in the Indian Act that I was working on. It was definitely clouding my cognition as I went along. Indigenous women have been working for a long time to eliminate the sex discrimination. And currently, we have a 61A All the Way campaign, which asks Canada to eliminate all the sex discrimination. Maybe a good place to start would be with some of the history. What was the original form of sex discrimination in the Indian Act, and how did that contrast with the various ways that things worked within Indigenous nations before that? Of course, I can't give you a complete history, but Indigenous women and their children had a prominent role in the community. They were protected and they had special knowledge and women were leaders and stood behind them. We were not patriarchal societies that oppressed women and children. This changed, though, with the onset of European arrival, in particular when the population shift happened where Europeans outnumbered Indigenous people. Prior to that outnumbering, settler people relied on our knowledge and valued our knowledge. But over time, when that population shifted, that's when Canada began to define who was an Indian, who was not an Indian, and eventually use sex discrimination as their process of eliminating Indians and Indigenous rights. In 1857, the Gradual Civilization Act, Indian women and their children were enfranchised uh, and enfranchised here means had their Indian status terminated. When their husbands or fathers were enfranchised, and in 1869, through the Gradual Enfranchisement Act, Indian women, along with their children who married non-Indian men, were enfranchised and denied Indian status registration and their treaty rights. At that time, of course, that was in line with the European model of the world where women were considered chattel. And so eventually, when Canada became a country in 1867, that's when it was called the Indian Act. And then eventually, Indian women would lose their status and their children when they married a white man. 
You mentioned the importance of the imposition of Indian status and sex discrimination within that in the Canadian state's efforts to eliminate Indigenous peoples and Indigenous rights. I think that's a connection that a lot of Canadians don't really understand, so talk a bit more about that. When the European people first arrived here, they were entering into peace and friendship treaties. But again, as time moved on, they wanted the land and the resources. They wanted to take it from the Indigenous people. So they started to deny us our rights and then also relocate us onto reserve lands. And from that process, relocating us to reserve lands, they started in a process of forced assimilation, better known as genocide, enfranchising Indian people into Canadian society, which, of course, was a failure. I mean, the reserve still exists today and there's still status Indians today. But it was one of the processes of denying Indian rights and Indigenous land rights. Tell listeners about some of the history of resistance by Indigenous women to the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. My great-grandmother and my grandmother were from Pequawkinagon First Nation from Golden Lake, and they were Indians. And what happened was my great-grandmother was forced to leave her reserve community because the man she married, Joseph Ghani, was considered a white man, which in fact he wasn't. He was Indigenous, but Indigenous through his mother. So what happened was my great-grandmother, Annie, was forced to leave the reserve in the 1930s. And she did eventually write a letter to the Indian agent in 1945 and ask if she was considered to be an Indian. And in reply, the Indian agent had told her that when she married my great-grandfather, Joseph Gandhi, she became a white woman. And so my process of challenging sex discrimination actually predates my arrival, predates my birth, and it's intergenerational. There is also, of course, across Canada, a long lineage of women who have been challenging the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. So, for example, Mary Tuax Early, she's considered like the grandmother of this process. And some people say grandmother of feminism here in Canada, Indigenous feminism. She was the first to speak out about the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And then it was in 1973 when Yvonne Bedard and Jeanette Corbet Laval made it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court ruled against them. They used some form of logic to say that Yvonne and Jeanette and Indigenous women were not being treated any differently than Canadian women. So that was in 1973 when they went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And then Sandra Lovelace Nicholas, she's now a senator, she went to the United Nations and they did not rule on the issue of sex discrimination in the Indian Act, but they did rule that the Indian Act denied her cultural and political rights. She went there in 1977, I think it was heard in 1981. And then what happened was when Canada patriated its constitution, the Charter of Rights came with it. Uh, and the patriation of the Constitution took place in 1982, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms took effect in 1985. And within the Charter of Rights is Section 15 that says that Canada cannot discriminate based on sex and race and other issues. So they had to bring the Indian Act in line with that charter. Uh, and this was the 1985 amendment to the Indian Act mentioned in the introduction. It was ultimately a failure because what they did is they invented the second generation cutoff rule and they discriminated against the descendants of Indian women. 
And the second generation cutoff rule is a process where after two generations of having children with non-status people, second generation descendants are not entitled to Indian status. Although they brought in the charter and we live in a post-charter world, the sex discrimination continues. And it was Sharon MacGyver who took on a charter challenge in British Columbia regarding the issue of the 61A, 61C hierarchy, which talks about how Indian men and their children are better off when it comes to Indian status than the reinstated women and their children and grandchildren. Again, it's known as the 61A, 61C hierarchy. So all the people who were always Indians prior to 1985, Kennedy made them 61A Indians. But the women who were reinstated, they only made them 61C Indians. And through that difference, the second generation cutoff rule is impacting the descendants of these reinstated women. And so some of them are actually are not entitled to status yet. The second generation cutoff rule is only being applied to the men and their descendants after 1985. So Sharon MacGyver took that very issue of the 61A, 61C hierarchy to court in British Columbia. And she won on that matter. The judge ruled, uh, you know, just eliminate all this sex discrimination. But what happened was Canada appealed that and the Court of Appeal narrowed the remedy. They grossly narrowed the remedy, which meant that sex discrimination continued. And Sharon wasn't happy with that. She wanted a 61A Indian status just as her brother had it. And she appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada and they refused to hear her case because technically she won. So she had to apply to the United Nations. And I think she applied in 2011. And it was recently ruled that Canada has to eliminate all the sex discrimination that is inherent in the 61A, 61C hierarchy. Explain more about the distinction between 61A status and 61C status. It is confusing and it is complicated. I've listened to judges talk about how complicated this is. The first thing I suggest people understand is the second generation cutoff rule. And the second generation cutoff rule is very similar to a Canadian moving to Britain and having a family. While their child will be entitled to Canadian citizenship, their grandchildren would not be. There's a second generation cutoff rule. So that's very similar to the second generation cutoff rule in the Indian Act that's happening here in Canada. Of course, this is our land, so that's the first thing I need to say. But with the second generation cutoff rule, it applies to everybody. But the difference is with the men and their descendants, it only applies after 85. But with the women who were reinstated, it begins to apply right away. So, for example, my great grandmother, the second generation cutoff rule started right away when I had her reinstated. But her hypothetical brother and their descendants, the second generation cutoff rule wouldn't begin until after 1985. So that's the issue that we're trying to resolve. We're trying to get 618 all the way. We're trying to eliminate the sex discrimination inherent in the 61A and 61C hierarchy so that the women who were reinstated and their descendants are equal to the men and their descendants who were already status before 85. We're just trying to resolve the sex discrimination pre-1985. What happened in your individual court battle in terms of status and sex discrimination in the Indian Act? My situation was, again, a form of sex discrimination that was created in 1985. Prior to 1985, there were provisions that protected children of unknown and unstated paternity. 
the child of an Indian woman was considered to be an Indian, you know, if the father's name wasn't recorded on the birth certificate, unless a protest was made and the protest was successful. So again, there were protective provisions in the Indian Act for children of unknown and unstated paternity prior to 1985. But 1985, they took those provisions out and the Indian Act became silent on that very issue. So when I went back and reinstated my great-grandmother and my grandmother, actually, I had to go back to my great-great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, great-grandfather, my grandmother and my father, and had them reinstated and registered as Indians. What happened in the situation, though, is I don't know who my paternal grandfather is, My grandmother had a child who was my father, and I don't know who the man was. So I know who my father is. I just don't know who my paternal grandfather is. And what happened was when I applied for Indian status and reinstated my family members, my ancestors, when it came to me, they determined that that unknown father was a white man. And I was hit with the second generation cutoff rule and denied Indian status, even though my father's birth was in 1935 and my birth is 1962. They applied the new rules regarding the issue of unknown and unstated paternity. So in 1985, when I was denied, I realized that that was a form of sex discrimination. And in the end, I had to do a lot of archival research and 22 years of litigation. And, you know, some people say I won in the Court of Appeal in 2017. But what ended up happening was I was hit with this discrimination between the 61A and 61C hierarchy. So I was only given 62 Indian status versus what I should be entitled to because I was born before 1985. I should be a 61A. And you mentioned that Sharon McIver, after the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear her appeal, went to the UN. Tell me about that. Sharon McIver is quite an important person. She's a matriarch. She comes out of British Columbia. She has a great support system. Well, I think it's a great support system with Gwen Boratsky and Sheila Day, which is quite different than my process of going through the courts. And when she was denied the right to have her case heard in the Supreme Court of Canada, they filed a petition to the United Nations immediately after. So I imagine that was in 2011. And the United Nations petition was just recently ruled on it, like in January 11th of this year. And the United Nations ruled that Canada has to eliminate all the sex discrimination in the Indian Act inherent in the 61A and 61C hierarchy. And Canada has to respond by July. I think it's this July that they had six months to respond to this United Nations ruling. So from the public statements that Canadian governments have made in court and in the media and so on over the years, what's your sense of why they aren't eliminating sex discrimination in the Indian Act? Why is Canada invested in continuing this discrimination? When they amended the Indian Act in 1985, they were aware that the sex discrimination continued to the second generation cutoff rule. They said they would have consultations about it and resolve it. And then again, in 2010, they told us the same thing that was under the conservative government, that they would have a stage two consultation and eliminate the sex discrimination. And then again, here we were in 2017, and they said the same thing under the liberal government. Oh, we're going to have stage two consultations on this issue. But what is really important is you don't consult on human rights. A human right is a human right, period. 
Another thing they were doing is they were confounding the process with band membership. And they were saying they have to consult with the bands. You know, this is an issue of self-determination and self-government. Well, that's a load of garbage because Indian status is separate from band membership. So they were confounding and obfuscating the issue. This was just in 2017. So that question you ask is a great question. Why in the world would Canada want this kind of stain on their reputation? I think it's an economic issue, but I also think that what a lot of people don't quite understand is Canada is motivated to continue to deny our treaty rights and our land rights and our jurisdiction rights. And the elimination of status Indians is a part of that, as is the extinguishment in the land claim process. Canada really needs to and is motivated to force assimilation, better known as genocide. Canada is refusing, continually refusing to meet us on a nation-to-nation basis and really valuing and respecting our rights to land and resources. And again, the two ways they're doing it is sex discrimination in the Indian Act, the second generation cutoff rule, and the issue of extinguishment in the land claim process. The two are closely related. It's Canada's policy. It's a continuation of Canada's policy of cultural genocide, of genocide. A lot of people don't like the adjective culture on there. The Indian that was initially created to eliminate Indians, and it continues to be that way. How did the current 61A All the Way campaign come about? As I said, we've been rallying for a long time to eliminate the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. We have, you know, 50 years of litigation. And in 2005, there was a protest in Ottawa. And then again in 2010, with March and Moon, there was a protest just before the Indian Act was amended again. And at that time, of course, my court case was moving through. And I wanted to support March and Moon and Chair MacGyver in particular. And so I made my way to Ottawa from Peterborough. My contribution to this process has been more about a community contribution, a cultural contribution. And at that time, I invented the slogan, 61A all the way. Coming from a cultural anthropology background, I understood that we needed some slogan to rally around. And that took off. It made sense. And when the Indian Act was amended most recently in 2017, that was the concept that we rallied around. And it was a really interesting process because the senators actually understood the concept as well. They were actually fist pumping 61A all the way. The senators are behind this issue. There was a unanimous decision by the Senate to support the 61A all the way clause. We couldn't manage to do it again, as I said, in 2017. We rallied hard, we lobbied hard to have the inclusion of the 61A all the way clauses put into the Indian Act, but the House didn't want it. They pulled out the 61A all the way clauses and then they voted to pass a version that perpetuated sex discrimination, and that included Carolyn Bennett, Jody Wilson Rabel, and Miriam Monset, the Minister of Gender and Women's Equality. They voted against us. The only concession that we were able to get was they left the clauses in the Indian Act, but they didn't proclaim them as law. So that was the only concession we could get. What is good about that, though, is that since the 61A all the way clauses are in the Indian Act, the only thing that was needed now is for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to proclaim those clauses into law. And then, boom, all the sex discrimination in the Indian Act will be eliminated. If he does do that, he will have accomplished something that no other prime minister has been able to do, eliminate the sex discrimination in the Indian Act. 
So where we are right now is we are, some people would say pressuring, but I prefer to say I'm more making sure that the knowledge remains in the collective consciousness of people. I've been rallying outside of Marion Munsef's office here in Peterborough, Ontario. Again, she's the Minister of Women and Gender Equality. I feel obligated to do it because she happens to be in my riding. So I just meet with a community people to make sure it doesn't slip out of her consciousness and the people's consciousness. I continue to do that until June 18th. And what we're asking Prime Minister Trudeau to do is to issue an order of council in a cabinet meeting on any Tuesday because that's when cabinet meets. I have been getting some community support. Actually, it's been great some real solid community support. The media, they have picked it up. I think that I definitely have made sure that it doesn't leave the consciousness of Peterborough that the Liberal government is fine with discriminating against Indigenous women. And that's really one of the things I wanted to do. When the Liberal government came in on the platform of being a feminist government and wanting to move toward nation to nation and reconciliation, is someone who has a PhD in Indigenous studies and did a PhD on the Algonquin land claim process and this legal process of sex discrimination. I knew it was political rhetoric that Trudeau was spewing. It was causing me actually great harm because a lot of people around me felt affirmed by that, but I knew it was a lie. And so I think that it's definitely in the consciousness of community people here in Peterborough that the Liberal platform was a lie. What would you ask listeners who are supportive, but who don't necessarily live in Peterborough to do to act in support? The Feminist Alliance for International Action has been supporting Sharon McIver and the call for Canada to meet her ruling, the United Nations ruling. And so what the Feminist Alliance is asking people to do is to email Justin Trudeau, Carolyn Bennett, Miriam Monsef, and David Lametti and urge them to proclaim the outstanding sections of Bill S3 into law before June 21st. Actually, on a weekly basis, the Feminist Alliance for International Action is asking that to be done on a weekly basis. And what's the significance of doing it by June 21st? That's when the House will rise for the summer and probably move into an election process, which potentially means that the issue can be pushed aside. We're asking the Prime Minister to do it, you know, the last date that he could do it is June 18th. It's a Tuesday. And that's why the campaign is called Any Tuesday or 17 Tuesdays. If the Trudeau government doesn't take this step by June 21st, are you considering taking action of some sort during the upcoming federal election campaign? Well, I do think about that. I mean, it's not something that I really want to do, but I think I'd have to continue to do this work and point out to people that Mary Munsef and the Liberal government have not addressed the issue of sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And hopefully people will put some political pressure on the Liberal government and Mary Munsef. You have been listening to my interview with Lynn Gale about sex discrimination in the Indian Act and the current 61A All the Way campaign. To learn more about Gale and her work, go to lynngale.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Yeah.